Welcome back, friends, fellow philosophers, and authors to this wild aisle writing cast. I have back with me, me, for another episode of Regression to the Mean. This episode is Aversion to Additives. Do adverbs and adjectives actually cause asphyxiation? If you couldn't get it by the subtitle there, this is about adjectives, adverbs, and their contribution to purple prose. Now, what is purple prose? Well, that's a good question. Uh, I, I'm like a good philosopher. I don't have a definition here today, um, but I can say that the phrase is often used as a pejorative to talk about fiction that is, as you would say, overwrought, right? Too much effort has been put into its prose, and it feels like the author is trying too hard. Um, oftentimes, the let's say criticism is that the author has chosen words that require constant modifiers hence the word additives there uh, so weak nouns weak verbs um, not a very good use of figurative language and it requires excess verboseness it decreases efficiency um, and makes their writing a slog to read and you know it, this actually does happen it happens quite a lot and editors are right to critique works about using too many adverbs when they are not necessary. However, there is a tendency to regress toward the mean. This is more true in academia, I find, than it is elsewhere. But I do see it quite often where, let's say, adverbs, adjectives, excess modifiers, descriptions are cut for the sake of it, right? The, there is no thought as to whether or not they ought to be cut or why they should be cut. It is, ah, you're using a lot of adverbs here and therefore cut them down. Now, I disagree with this. I think that this is, again, a regression to the mean, a moving toward the average. If you are an average editor because you happen to be an average or below average writer, what you're going to do is you are going to cut out useful information from your client's work. If you are an author and your editor is doing this to you, be wary and watch today's episode to find out. And just like last time, we're going to go over a few examples because I think this is better demonstrated than talked about, right? So without further ado, we're going to go through a bunch of examples and we're going to see what happens when we cut down on the adverbs, cut down on the adjectives, the extra descriptions as much as possible and see what comes out of well-established classic works and some things that I've written as well. So we're going to start out with The Last Unicorn, which if you have not read, you should read. It is fantastic. So we're going to take a little snippet and it reads, <clears throat> But Molly pushed him aside and went up to the unicorn, scolding her as though she were a strayed milk cow. Where have you been? Before the whiteness and the shining horn, Molly shrank to a shrilling beetle, but this time it was the unicorn's old dark eyes that looked down. I am here now, she said at last. Molly laughed with her lips flat. And what good is it to me that you're here now? Where were you twenty years ago? Ten years ago? How dare you? How dare you come to me now, where I am this? With a flap of her hand, she summed herself up, barren face desert eyes, and yellowing heart. I wish you had never come. Why did you come now? The tears began to slide down the sides of her nose. So without comment, we're going to go on to the cut-down version. That was the true version out of the novel, uh, assuming I didn't have any typos here, which I did if you, you guys can't see my document, but I can. But let's look what happens when we slash down all of the additives that we, we can. Let's see what we're left with. 
but Molly pushed him and went up to the unicorn, scolding her. Where have you been? Before the whiteness in the horn, Molly shrank, but this time it was the unicorn's eyes that looked down. I am here now, she said. Molly laughed. And what good is it to me uh, that you're here now? Where were you twenty years ago? Ten years ago? How dare you? How dare you come to me now, when I am this? She summed herself up. I wish you had never come. What, why did you come? The tears began to slide down her nose. You'll notice that a number of the lines fell flat there. Um, and I'm going to go over the original version so we can see where we cut and really feel the, the difference. So the first bit, uh, the bit of figurative language gets just decimated, right? Um, scolding her as though she were a strayed milk cow. That's a particular way of, of scolding her. And you can't find a, a single verb that's going to get that for you, right? Scolding is itself a good verb, right? It's not merely yelling. It has a thick meaning. It has a particular purpose to it. But there are sub-purposes that require modification. And the use of figurative language in that modification is actually quite clever because it actually makes it even thicker because you think of a particular instance or circumstance in which someone would, well, in this case, scold a cow, right? So um, she's talking to a unicorn, this mythical creature that is held in high regard in the setting, and she's treating it like a mundane animal, not even just a mundane animal, but one causing her problems, like a nuisance. There's a lot of thick meaning in there, and when you slash out that big figure of language that's modifying the word scolding, you're losing a lot of richness to the text. The same thing when you take shining off of the horn. Um, the unicorn's horn is talked about quite a lot because it is the novel, The Last Unicorn. And there's a lot of significance in that thing being shining, right? Or something that shines. Um, it gives texture to the unicorn herself that every description that you know is, is put upon her is something that you would seek after, like gold, right? Gold glitters in the sunlight. She has a shining horn that is sought after. So you can't strip that away and just come off with the same uh, texture to the text. Uh, shrank to a shrilling beetle, right? Oh, there is so much richness. So a beetle is this tiny thing and a lot of beetles uh, even if they can bite you, they're relatively harmless, right? They're not like, you know, like a wasp that stings and leaves a sharp lingering pain, but a shrilling beetle. So a shrill is a sharp cry um, made by something typically small or a woman have a high-pitched voice. And she shrank down to this tiny little thing screaming inside, right? Again, you cannot just say Molly shrank. You're losing the evocative nature of the, again, figurative language. So this is very cleverly done. I would like to point out that it's not, the the problem is not the modification. The problem is not the extra description onto the nouns and verbs. The problem is oftentimes discursion, so a, a literal description onto thin language. But when you already have thick language that's then given uh, even richer texture by, let's say, a simile, uh, or in this case, a metaphor, then it all comes together and it's it's a bit like music where you have all the instruments coming together uh, in an orchestra to produce something that you cannot produce with any single instrument. And then we have the unicorn's eyes, old dark eyes, right? That gives a lot of depth because the unicorn is an ancient creature, an immortal creature whose eyes are dark. They're impenetrable. You cannot see through them. There's a lot of rich connotation there in the very simple word dark that when you cut it out, 
you lose that and it really hurts the the entirety of this small piece again molly laughed with her lips flat right the with her lips flat that describes the laugh in a way that uh you know you could go and pull up a thesaurus and there's a few different words for laugh but in this case the actual description of the of the laugh has a nice contrasting effect because laugh by itself is jovial right um so it has a positive connotation instead of looking for a word specifically that means laugh, but that would denote the negative connotation. We allow laugh, laugh to be there, and then we have the flat lips, right? The expressionlessness, the contrast of joy put together there in the text. And so we produce that contrast on the page. And that has, again, a more powerful effect than merely trying to find uh, let's say what in some contexts would be like a richer verb for the particular kind of laugh. Um, a lot of it, you know, in the dialogue holds, holds true. Uh, I cut out with a flap of her hand. She summed herself up, right? Because why do we need to add that particular gesture modifying? She just, she, uh, you know, gave the sum of herself, brought herself to bear. But then I also cut off all the little descriptions, right? Barren face, desert eyes, yellowing heart. You wouldn't just say she summed herself up face, eyes, and heart. I guess you could, um, I could have left those in, but without the, additions there the fact that her face was barren devoid desert eyes right again um there's nothing there it is a forlorn place of death and desolation all hope and and joy and love is lost yellowing heart yellowing like yellowing paper our leaves yellowing growing uh, fragile in the autumn right the autumn of her life you could see that you you can't just take this stuff out and expect to have any of that richness. But if you're merely following the rule, okay, like cut out uh, adjectives, cut out adverbs, cut out modifications as much as possible, you're going to regress your client or if you're uh, the author, your, your uh, editor is gonna regress you to really below average. You cannot get away with, with, with doing that. So that's the example for the last unicorn. Uh, we'll go ahead to Lovecraft, there he is, uh, because he, perhaps does this to excess, but I'm going to take this from uh, the Call of Cthulhu and we'll see what happens when I take the original version. I'll read that out and then I'll do the same exact thing, the cut down version and see what's missing. So, so a body of 20 police filling two carriages and an automobile had set out in the late afternoon with the shivering squatter as a guide. At the end of the passable road they alighted, and for miles splashed on in silence through the terrible cypress woods where day never came. Ugly roots and malignant hanging nooses of Spanish moss beset them, and now and then a pile of dank stones or fragment of rotting wall intensified by its hint of morbid habitation, a depression which every malformed tree and every fungus islet combined to create. At length the squatter settlement, a miserable huddle of huts, hove in sight, and hysterical dwellers ran out to cluster around the group of bobbing lanterns. The muffled beat of tom-toms was now faintly audible far, far ahead, and a curdling shriek came at infrequent intervals when the wind shifted. A reddish glare, too, seemed to filter through the pale undergrowth beyond endless avenues of forest night. Reluctant even to be left alone again, each one of the cowed squatters refused point-blank to advance another inch toward the scene of unholy worship. 
So Inspector Lagrassi and his 19 colleagues plunged on unguided into black arcades of horror that none of them had ever trod before. Yeah, okay, so you can kind of tell already a lot of this is about to be uh, scoured. So here's the cut-down version, uh, the regression to the mean version, if you will. So a body of police, filling two carriages in an automobile, had set out in the afternoon with the squatter as a guide. At the end of the road they alighted, and for miles splashed on through the woods. Roots and Spanish moss beset them, and now and then stones uh, or a wall intensified a depression. The settlement hove in sight, and dwellers ran out to cluster around the lanterns. The beat of tom-toms was now audible ahead, and a shriek came at intervals. A glare, too, filtered through the undergrowth. Each one of the squatters refused to advance toward the scene of unholy war. Oh, it stuck unholy in there, said the scene of worship. So Inspector Lagrassi and his colleagues plunged into arcades. The first thing that struck me with this one, I didn't talk about it with the last unicorn, is the utter lack of rhythm in the cut-down piece. And I think this is important because in a lot of modern fiction, a lot of fiction, really, I've noticed a an utter lack of music, another lack of rhythm. Um, there seems to be no attention paid to the qualities of sound by quite a many um, authors and virtually no editors, to be frank. But you could hear, it, it sounds like, to me, a typewriter, where each sentence has to reset the rhythm and start again. Um, particularly as we you know, moved forward and the sentences got incredibly short, uh, unlike the typical Lovecraft sentence, this is very long and plodding and has this kind of undulating rhythm to it. Even I love to use the word undulate to describe that because even the word itself seems to uh, to oscillate, right? Like all of the different words that mean that same thing, all those synonyms there. But let me read a couple of those. Uh, let's say, a glare too filtered through the undergrowth. Each one of the squatters refused to advance toward the scene of worship. Right, like each clause even just has this hard stop to it, as opposed to the original. Um, now, the original had quite a few alliterations in it, right? So let me see if I can find one quickly, because uh, there we go. At length, the squatter settlement, a miserable huddle of huts hove in sight, and hysterical dwellers ran out to cluster on the group of bobbing lanterns. So right there, that. It's a bit of magic here, a bit of music. At length, the squatter settlement, a miserable, so you have the repeated S sounds, and then the H's come in and intermixes, huddle of huts hove in sight, and hysterical dwellers, right? That really carries the sentence and uh, helps facilitate the rhythm that Lovecraft is going for, which is actually something that you have to learn. But once you learn it, um, his prose is actually quite fluid. Uh, many people, I think, think it's clunky, and they, you know, they give him the uh, pejorative of being the purple prose writer. And at times, yeah, definitely, um, he can get clunky, uh, just like Robert E. Howard definitely does, and the other pulp writers. They're writing at such a pace it, it happens. But they actually gave quite a lot of attention to the sound of their fiction that I don't think you can get if you, again, now let's talk about regression to the mean have to cut everything down to simplify it. The use of the adverbs and the use of the adjectives allow for the, uh, let's say, assembling of qualities of sound and rhythm to the work. You have more syllables to work with. You can control the stress and unstressed syllables. 
uh, more easily, you can line up the multitude of, uh, let's say, repeating consonant sounds in either alliteration or consonants or an assonance if it happens to be a vowel. Moreover, we have a kind of, um, again, rich texture. This is very similar to what I talked about with the last unicorn. Uh, let's see here where we want to start. Let's see. Wow, splashed in silence. Yeah, okay. So at the end of the passable road, they alighted, and for miles splashed on in silence through the terrible cypress woods, where day never came. Ugly roots and malignant hanging nooses of Spanish moss, like malignant hanging nooses, right? So we have malignant and hanging being two modifiers, um, nooses being a figure of speech to, let's say, uh, as a metaphor to describe the moss itself. Um, the fact that the roots are ugly, they're just not roots, they're hideous, um, you know, climbing like claws out of the, out of the water, right? Um, let's see, a pile of dank stones. It's not just rocks, because, you know, there are plenty of beautiful stones. Uh, I mean, the uh, tigerai stones around my neck are pretty, right? So it's not the same thing as a dank stone. And the word dank brings with it so much texture. You really can't get that out of a single word for rock. Like there, there is, it's not that, let's say here Lovecraft is even using weak nouns and verbs. He's using um, strong ones where, where possible. Uh, and then he's adding extra texture to it through the use of the modifiers, right? At some point, the modifiers are great. And in fact, I would say there's no harm in adverbs and there's no harm in adjectives and there's no harm in figurative descriptions ever. So long as they are not, um, let's say the error that I described at the beginning right? As long as what we are not doing is patching weaknesses. If we are adding strength to strength, that's good writing. And if you're one of the pulp, uh, let's say revival writers, right? The, uh, the people who are now, uh, you know, part of what they call like Iron Age, this is what you want to aim at. Like, I don't know if you guys know this, but this type of attention to detail is what made these writers great. It's not just the content of their stories. It's the fact they also really cared about the craft. Um, and I think that gets terribly neglected. So let's move on to a piece of my own. We'll start um, with a little excerpt from Wan Smoke Broken. It's my first novel. I, I think you guys should be able to see it back there on the little, um, it's not a shelf, what is it, a table, side table, whatever it is. All right, so we'll read the full version and then we'll read the cutoff version. You'll notice with this piece, the cutoff version, I had to really, really, really adjust so that it worked grammatically. Um, and I'm going to talk about that after, but we'll start with the true version. Cut off and cut down. Multitudinous metal sounds ring loud inside the gatehouse as a swarm of bees, as a storm of quarrels. Fewer litter the ground than sting the champion, yet still the rain of iron-headed bolts falls heavier than the shields that clang on the floor, louder than the lingering twang of bowstrings. Then we hear it, the yipping of several dozen ghouls hiding in the walls and in the ceiling. For murder holds, another volley of bolts, a cascade of screams of men falling. All right, here's the cut-down version. It's way different. Sounds ring inside the gatehouse. Fewer quarrels litter the ground than sting the champion. Shields clang to the floor. Then we hear it, the yipping. Ghouls hide in the walls and in the ceiling. From murder holes, another volley. Screams. Men falling. All right, so what, what happened here? 
we don't need cut off and cut down, right? That is a bit of stylistic flair. It's an addition to um, the scene, what's happening in the scene. We actually describe it after, so that goes. We don't need multitudinous or metal as a modifier to the sounds. Their sounds are ringing, right? Uh, but ring is the verb here, so sounds ring. Now, the thing is, sounds ring inside the gay house doesn't tell you anything. It's actually extremely thin. So you might say, okay, like, then you're using multitudinous and metal in order to, uh, let's say, patch the weakness of sounds ringing. But I actually would argue, no, that's not the case. Um, I am creating a bit of rhyme here, right? So we have down, sound, loud, right? Uh, I wanted that this sounds to play off each other so that the sentence flowed in a particular way. And I wanted to set up the alliteration for a multitudinous metal sounds ring loud inside the gatehouse. Um, and then we lose as a swarm of bees, as a storm of corals. So we, uh, we lose the chance to use figurative language when we just want to simplify it to, okay, there are sounds and uh, they, they're ringing. So you can't, you can't cut that out. And moreover, like look what happens to the way the sentence is structured. So in the cutdown version, we have sounds ring inside the gatehouse, fewer corals litter the ground. Okay, we we don't get that until the second sentence. Fewer litter, we have fewer litter litter to the ground, right? Because we don't know the corals. Why don't we know the corals? Because corals is actually a storm of corals, which is a part of figurative language, which is um, something that we just got in the previous additive. So what I did there is I attached something that is essentially a modifier to preload the subject matter in the next sentence so I don't have to say it. So not only do I, I get the uh, extra texture and the um, bit of figurative language in the true version, but I actually map it on efficiently to the next sentence so I don't have to say it again, right? Fewer little ground than sting the champion. Um, now sting makes way more sense because I have as a swarm of bees, right? Now all of a sudden, Oh, we have the crossbow bolts all flying in from the walls and the ceiling, and they are stabbing this guy, this champion, like a uh, swarm of bees do. So the stinging him makes more sense. We lose that extra context, which um, takes away the texture of the figure of language. Uh, yet still the rain of iron-headed bolts falls heavier than the shields, right? Okay, so what happened there? Uh, then we hear it, oh no, one back. Shields clang to the floor. That's what you get when you, you cut out the rain of iron-headed bolts falls heavier. Because the problem is, if you strip out heavier, how they're falling, you, you actually can't have the sentence work anymore. So yet still the rain of iron-headed bolts falls than the shield. So then you lose, because you cut out heavier, you lose the comparison than the shields that clang to the floor. The shields clang, clang to the floor is actually efficiently loaded into the comparative uh, the comparison, right? Uh, so I'm, I have that contrast there and I'm using something that's happening in that contrast. So it's all happening at the same time. Again, interweaving the extra description, the um, say some of the use of adverbs or in this case, figurative language um, to describe uh, another event instead of just trying to find one particular verb or one particular noun or something like that to do it. Um, I'm interweaving the sentences together. So they become actually, you can't really rip them apart without destroying the whole piece. Again, that's something that is really fun to achieve when you really dig into the prose. And if someone's going to come to you and say, hey, just cut, 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 you're going to lose all of that, right? All right, so 
Last, lastly, another piece I've written. This is from something I have yet to publish uh, that I hope to publish in a series of liter uh, yeah, a literary magazine. So I want to do that. If you're an author, by the way, and you're interested, uh, let me know. Contact me either via my website, wildialit.com, or you can um, just get a hold of me any way you can. If you know me on any social media, that works too. And let me know if you're interested, and uh, I'll, I'll catch you up on that. But Without further ado, let's get into it. So this is from the seventh discourse from Kashim's Discourses. It's part of the Wan Smoke series. Slowly and clumsily, the Colossus turns, shaking the earth with its poor coordination. Each limb is controlled separately by its own gremlin pilot. If I had to guess, I say there's one at each hip hidden behind the machination's armor, and another in the chest where a single window glows with a familiar blue light. That's where I'd take my shot if I had a staff wand and a mind to kill whichever gremlin is coordinating this monster. But it's not my fight, so I keep my mouth shut and watch as the mechanical dragon turns to face us, adjusting the aim of its weapons. As it does, a whirring sound whinges from within, what I assume are gremlin peddlers pumping blue luminescent fuel from the bowsers and into the death engines. As if in confirmation, their encasements begin to glow at the edges as they hum to life, loud, like the spinning blades of a windmill ripping up, oh, sorry, the spinning blades of a mill ripping apart the wind, faster than a storm gale on the sails of a Rajman trade ship. All right, quite verbose. Let's see the cut down version. The Colossus turns, shaking the earth. Each limb is controlled by its own gremlin pilot. If I had to guess, I'd say there's one in each hip and another in the chest. That's where I'd take my shot had I a staff a wand and a mind to kill whichever gremlin is coordinating this monster. But it's not my fight, so I keep my mouth shut and watch as the mechanical dragon turns. A sound whinges, what I assume are peddlers pumping fuel from the bowsers and into the death engines. Their encasements glow as they hum. Oh, could you hear it? You're starting to get that action hero typewriter one-liner uh, rhythm. Right. Once I cut those out. So this is another case where the attempt at, uh, let's say, stripping out excess uh, modification, excess additives creates a voice that is utterly spiritless is the way I would describe it. Um, I hate it every time that I hear it. It's the uh, generic action hero voice. So that's the first thing you notice right away that gets just that ruins the entire enjoyment really for me of the piece i would i start to get annoyed when i hear that where i'm like this and my voice kind of comes and it goes like this maybe a little longer but then it ends that's the rhythm that uh, gets produced but we also miss a quite a lot of d description of this gigantic beast because you can't really do it um without a a lot of use of in this case, uh, let's say figurative language, right? We lose that really cool description at the end um, where we have uh, spinning blades of a mill ripping apart the wind faster than the storm gale on the sails of a Rajman trade ship, right? It just ends at the things that are humming, right? Okay, things glow, things hum, but how do they glow with blue luminescent fuel pumped, right, from the, uh, from the Bowsers, right? Uh, we lose the alliteration there, you know, as it does a whirring sound, sorry, a whirring sound whinges from within what I assume are gremlin peddlers, right? We lose that, uh, that effect from the alliteration, the, the kind of movement, right? In the sound of wind. I'll read that again for you guys. As it does, a whirring sound whinges from within what I assume. So why does that create a wind-like effect? Well, there's a reason that wind 
we associate with the W sound because if you blow wind, it's the same or very similar mouth shape that we form. Um, and W sounds are easy to repeat. They flow, again, like the wind. What else do we lose here? Uh, familiar blue light, right? So the color of the light and the fact that it's familiar suggests that uh, Kashima has seen this before. Um, and that hints back to something that has you know happened prior and why is it important well it contextualizes the threat he might be seeing um what about this giant colossus slowly and clumsily the colossus turns when i just say the colossus turns you're not getting a feeling for its size and its weight the fact that it takes a long time just for it to turn slowly and clumsily the colossus turn the longer i take to describe it turning the longer it feels like it's turning right um, the same thing shaking the earth with its poor coordination um, the coordination the, the the length of the word the fact that this is a uh, let's say um, complex sentence those things all add to the slow motion of this gigantic machine aiming uh, leveling out its guns at uh, let's say the peddlers pedaling spinning it up to speed to pump the fuel to then light them up to get it ready to fire you lose all that it, the more hyper efficient that you are it's not good enough just to be efficient there are other factors to consider uh, the description is one the texture the, whether or not it evokes particular feelings and emotions uh, or, or senses or imagery um, you lose flow all kind of things right so Again, it is never, ever, 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 let's say, even sufficient to merely say, okay, here's the rule, cut, uh, quote unquote, unnecessary adjectives, adverbs, um, don't over describe. Obviously you can, and you can describe poorly. I'm not saying that that is, is something not to look out for, but what I am saying is that you need to understand what you're doing and your editor also needs to understand, or if you are an editor, you need to understand what you're doing. And for you guys, your authors out there, when you're writing, pay close attention to why you're describing a thing and how you're describing that thing. Um, and whether or not you should prioritize different elements, right? Are you evoking particular emotions in your reader? Um, are you going to be using a form of awesomeness or alliteration to do that? Um, because that might be a good idea if something is, um, you know, ferocious uh, and fiery and uh, furious, right? Maybe use a bunch of Fs. Uh, I use Ws here. Ss produce a smooth sound. Um, you can use those for water as well, or Ws for water as well, right? There are tons of ways that you can add texture via the prose um, by utilizing uh, adverbs and adjectives and figures of speech to modify already, this is the key, already thick nouns, already thick verbs as much as possible. Uh, and sometimes thinner ones, right? Like the word sound is not very thick, but um, a loud sound uh, like down um, and any other owl sound is going to allow you to create a kind of um, rhyme and that can create a musical effect that will bring the reader with you, right? There's all kinds of things that you could do, again, if you do not let yourself be regressed to the mean, to the average, to the mediocre. All right, guys, thank you for joining me. Hey, if you stuck around this long, uh, why don't you check out more of my work over at wildislit.com. I have essays there, short stories. You can find my published works on my website too. I have a blog if you like East Asian philosophy. That's what I've been covering for the past, I don't know, 
year, a couple years. I don't know how long I've been doing it. Go check that out. I'm doing Sun Tzu's Art of War right now. If you're listening to this when it comes out, uh, I also have my editing service. And I am currently, I'm always, not just currently, looking for clients, by the way. So if you're an author and you'd like to learn to write like how I've uh, just demonstrated, making your prose musical, um, giving it depth of texture, then hire me. I'm a line editor. This is what I specialize in. Also, if you are very much into, uh, say, theme, meta narrative, imbuing your work with symbolism, you want your, you know, your manuscript to mean something. You don't want it to just be another, uh, say, escapist art piece of candy that is going to rot your reader's uh, literary teeth. Sorry, that, that wasn't the best metaphor, but if you if you want to make your manuscript mean something, you can hire me for it as well. I also specialize in adding thematic depth to your manuscripts. That's at the Wild Isle Style Guide. Again, over at my website, wildislelit.com. I think I'm done. Oh, no, I'm not done shilling. Check out my book, Wandsmouth Broken. I read from it today. It's available on audio, the whole thing for free at my website and on YouTube and on Spotify and on Apple Podcasts, everywhere you go. So... There's no excuse. Check it out. I would love it if you were to give it a listen uh, and let me know what you think. I am really, really excited to know what you guys all think because I'm writing the sequel um, as we speak or as I uh, produce this video. So I, you know, I take your feedback into consideration and I do adjust my works accordingly because I want to be the best author that I can be. And I want you all to be the best authors that you can be as well. So thank you for tuning in. I hope this was useful to you and come back for another episode of Regression to the Mean. See you guys.